Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, Aubrey, this is a difficult time for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we've been talking about that during the course of this week. Like, is it, you know, if you've got weird family dynamics, other things, you know, uh, if you've lost somebody, how do you process that? But I was thinking about that, and then I read this article about Tim Keller. So Tim Keller one of my favorite pastors and authors. Uh, He is just kind of a wise, um, just theologian. And and so Tim Keller, though, is going through a cancer battle right now. And in fact, he has stage four pancreatic cancer. And he's been very open about it on on Twitter. And his wife, Kathy, came on to say, oh, but he's doing well right now. In fact, the doctors are surprised by how well he's doing. But still, stage four pancreatic cancer, you think about that and you go, man, that's got to like, just how do you live with that every day? Well, right, because even though it could, I mean, he could be doing well and he could last a long time. Everyone, you hear stage four pancreatic cancer, you sort of know what the end is. It gets you at some point, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And and then, like you said, every day you wake up, you know, I have stage four pancreatic yeah, cancer. Yeah, so, it, that's just so incredible to think about, like putting your head on the pillow at night, waking right. up, like you said, knowing that's part of your reality. That's right. And so with that in mind, Keller went to Twitter the other day uh, and he wrote something that I think... Uh, I think he was trying to provide pastoral care for people as you go through struggle from his own, um, uh, what he's going through right now. So let me just read it. And I want to think about the people out there right now who are struggling, whether it be health wise or, you know, circumstances of life or whatever else it would be. I wonder what Keller said here that you find helpful. He wrote this on Twitter. I have stage four pancreatic cancer. But it is endlessly comforting to have a God who is both infinitely more wise and more loving than I am. He has plenty of good reasons for everything he does and allows that I cannot know. uh, And therein is my hope and strength. Suffering awakens us out of our haunted sleep of spiritual self-sufficiency into a serious search for the divine. Grab on whatever you want from what Keller said in the midst of his battle Mm. with stage four cancer, kind of that perspective. You know, it's interesting him saying it is endlessly comforting to have a God who is both infinitely more wise and more loving than Mm -hmm. I am. I, I um, was actually talking to somebody last week whose wife died several years ago. So Mm. this man has been a widower for a while, but he was saying that there were things that he looked to his wife for, like to be his comfort, to be his partner, to be his mirror. He had all this beautiful, to be his anchor. Mm. And in time, what he began to realize is in his grief, which, I mean, he's still devastated about his wife's death, that Jesus became those things for him, became his comforter, became his anchor, became his mirror, all of those things. And I do think there is that bizarre but beautiful mystery in grief, even when you're like Tim Keller facing stage four cancer that somehow God shows up to comfort you in ways that are beyond your imagination. And part of that is like he's saying, he knows who God is. So part of it is a trust in what we know about God and what God has declared about himself through his word. I think another part of that simultaneously is just that this, the ministry of the Holy spirit who's Mm. with you in your grief Mm -hmm. and carries you through 
uh, reminding you of who God is, reminding you um, of who you are, and then meeting you in ways you couldn't even imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, knowing who God is, he says, uh, God is infinitely more wise and more loving than I am. We often Mm. say like kind of at the foundation of when you're going through struggles is to know and believe that God is good, Mm -hmm. Like that this isn't a surprise to God and that this doesn't make God less loving or less good, I think allows us to anchor ourselves uh, in that. What about that second part where he says, I find this fascinating. He says, suffering awakens us out of our haunted sleep of spiritual self-sufficiency into a serious search for the divine. He kind of says when life is good, uh, you're kind of in the what he calls a, quote, haunted sleep of spiritual self-sufficiency. Why do I need God? But that suffering kind of rips that away and and causes you to just kind of uh, search out the divine, search out God. Uh, that feels biblical, right? This idea well, I, of suffering. Yeah, I'm actually like pulling out my phone because where is it that Paul's like, wake up, sleeper? Mm. And all of that really is in the context of um, suffering, like a church mm-hmm. that's suffering is a church that's being awakened to the power of God. And so in our suffering, We really do. I mean, it really is. I feel like it could go either way, right? Like your suffering really is sort of a watershed moment where you go, okay, I'm leaning into the things of God. I am like repenting of my own spiritual sufficiency. I realize I need God and I have no control. And the Lord meets you in, in intimate, profound ways. Or if you don't surrender to God, you don't lean into God. Suffering, I think, becomes that thing where you just become bitter and broken and isolated and like shrink into yourself a little bit. Mm. So it's almost like, I don't know if this is fair to say, but you have a choice in suffering, right? Either to find God's presence there to wake up and to really see like, okay, God, are you real? Or you shrink back yeah. and you just lose any ounce of faith. Yeah. Well, it's, it's C.S. Lewis, right? If, if we don't know who it is, we always say C.S. Lewis, yeah. but I think it's C.S. Lewis <laughs> uh, who said, God whispers in our mm. comforts, but you know, pain is essentially God's megaphone. Mm. Um, and, wow. and it is that idea, but, and Lewis had a lot of pain in his yes. life if you've read his stories. Um, but you are right. I think that anytime we go into serious, you know, uh, pain, things like stage four, pancreas, whatever yeah. else it is, I think it is necessarily a fork in the road. I don't think you, your, your faith can be left the same. I do think that it's yeah. at that fork where people discard their faith. Right. They go, I, pff, yeah. uh, if, if a good God allowed this to happen to me, I'm out. But it's also where our faith deep it, the other way, you know, our faith deepens, the roots go deeper. It like he said, it well it wakes you from your haunted sleep of self sufficiency, mm. going, Gosh, I thought I had everything under control and then I got stage four yeah. uh pancreatic cancer. Now, uh Tim Keller's wife Kathy did say uh, please pray for continued effectiveness of the treatment with even fewer side effects as he begins a new round of chemotherapy. Mm. And thanks again for the outpouring of love and support. We're grateful awesome. and ask for your continued prayers. Uh, let me read one more thing. Tim Keller wrote in a column called Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. So he was writing about what's going on in his life at The Atlantic. He said this, As God's reality dawns more on my heart, slowly and painfully and through many tears, The simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. You Mm -hmm. do have to think that that near death or, or, you know, where that's an Mm -hmm. option kind of pain. We'll end with this. I love your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it, it gets your perspective, right? It probably orders Absolutely. things correctly. Absolutely. You know, my best friend in the world right now is battling stage four metastatic breast cancer. Mm. And that has been so true of her. Like she is just delighting in all of the little things that sometimes I think annoy us or something our kids do that might annoy us or an event where we're like, oh, I don't want to go to that. I'm tired. She's just showing up for things and enjoying things in a way that she hasn't because she has such a different perspective of her own timeline That's now. Right. And it's wow. teaching those of us around her quite a bit about um, what it means to really like be present and be yeah. grateful. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. Well, coming up next, uh, Rich Viotis, a pastor that we talk about mm-hmm. often here on the show, uh, he tweeted this, that John the Baptist is one of his favorite people in Scripture. Interesting. He gave the reasons for that, and I'm gonna we're going to discuss those reasons next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. New York-based pastor and author Rich Viotas. He pastors in Queens. He's the author of a wonderful book. Came out about a year or two ago called The Deeply Formed Life. Uh, it's a really, really good book. We had Rich on when it came out to talk about it. But all right, Aubrey, he wrote something very interesting. Uh, he tweeted something. Uh, it kind of gets you thinking. I, and I, it caught my eye because I'm actually preaching uh, on, about this person this week at our church as we kind of talk about characters of Christmas. He wrote about John the Baptist. Here's what he said. John the Baptist is one of my favorite people in Scripture. He knew who he wasn't. I'm not the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And he knew who he was. I am a voice in the wilderness. Every day I need to get clear in my soul who I am and who I am not. Otherwise, I find myself living a life God never called me to. I've never heard that about John the Baptist. That felt like a yeah. uh, a really interesting take. What what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I actually have a I have a de- uh, Advent devotional by Fleming Rutledge. She's an American theologian and she writes a lot about Fleming John. Rutledge is a woman? <clears throat> yes. I did not know yeah, that. I know the name. I always yeah. thought of the name Fleming as a man. It kind name. of feels male, but no, she's yeah. a very strong Sorry woman. to get you off the oh, point there. That surprised right. me. Um, but she writes about John the Baptist a lot in the in the Advent devotional, because she does talk about him being like the first herald of Jesus. And so really that, and ultimately that because John the Baptist is beheaded for his message, that really Advent is sort of that, right? Like Mm. we are heralding message while also suffering, while also like carrying his death with us. And so I do think there is something very powerful about the fact that John knew he was there to point to Jesus, to point yeah. to Jesus, to point to. And even what I love about John the Baptist, too, is people like saying, hey, will you baptize? He's like, baptize us. He's like, I can. But look, I'm not the one who's supposed right. to baptize you. Like he just knew his place. And it's so beautiful. And I, I feel like so many of us, including myself, big time, <laughs> need that posture of like, oh, it is not about me. It is not about my attention, my glory, my ministry, my anything. All I need to do, all I meant to do. Point to Jesus, point to Jesus, point mm. to, it's beautiful. I, I agree with Rich Fiotis. I think uh, John the Baptist is an amazing person in the scriptures. What it strikes me um, about John the Baptist is he was a big deal. Like he's, he becomes kind of an afterthought to us, right? When we talk about John the Baptist, when we preach about him or he always oh, John the Baptist. Yeah. He, John the Baptist was a huge deal. You read in the Gospels, he's got followers. Yes. He's got disciples. Right. If, if, this right. Was the, if this was today, right, John the Baptist, uh, he, would, uh, he would have um, 
he'd have paparazzi following him. Totally, right? 100%. And so John the Baptist, that also sets him up to be a jealous person. And so um, yeah. that's what always amazes me about him. Because if I were John the Baptist, right? I forget the text exactly where he says, he must become greater, I must become mm-hmm. less. Like yeah. John the Baptist, his John the Baptist's disciples were getting mad because people were going to Jesus. And John the Baptist is like, no, I must become less. He must become more. I'm here to point to him. This is all about Jesus. I find that to be really fascinating because I, I, yeah. I've told you this before. I struggle with envy. I struggle right, with jealousy. Right, right. I look at other people saying, John the Baptist, taking the ultimate beheading for Jesus out of the way, uh, John the Baptist had every reason to be jealous and and envious, and he wasn't. And Brian, forgive me if you said this, but and also think about the fact that he was his cousin, right? So then you're like, I'm jealous of my cousin. You know what I mean? Like yes. that's very real, but he wasn't. I also think what's fascinating too, like just in the whole scriptural narrative, is John the Baptist compared to the rulers of the day. Like here is a guy with followers. Here is a guy with influence. Here is a guy just pointing to Jesus while starting with Caesar Augustus, you know, all the way to whoever. Right. They're all so threatened by Mm. Jesus. And so to be able to have that posture of like, oh, no, I am not going to choose envy or jealousy. I know my place before the Lord. And actually, that's like the greatest thing there is. Like, that's actually true greatness and true power is, again, to humble ourselves so that he can become greater. We become less that's true greatness. I think for us just to be able to remember that and walk in that, it's so freeing. It is. But it's so difficult day to day. So how do we get there? Great let's question. let's be really okay. not not only how do I find my place yeah. before Jesus, right? Like we're yeah. called to be ambassadors of Christ. What do ambassadors do, right? They speak for mm. uh the one above them, yeah. right? But we've talked about this. How do you know your place, quote unquote? Uh, in the grand scheme of things here on earth, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you're an author. Yep. Like, you've had relative success as an author, but yep. you're not Rick Warren. Right. You're right. not these other people. Right. You and I, we're pastors. Our churches are functioning. They're doing just mm-hmm. fine and well, but we're not Pastor X. Yeah. And you kind of, in those moments, have choices, right? Radio, we we have a good show. Mm-hmm. We do this, but there's it's not this person right. uh, or this podcast. Right. So how do you... Uh, not only know your place, know mm-hmm. your strengths, but how yeah. do you grow in contentment of what you have without getting envious and like, yeah. oh, I wish to attain what they have? Yeah. You know, this is, I feel like in a lot of ways, this is like the struggle of my soul, Brian. And you mentioned it kind of is yours too. So we, I think we can just be real with our listeners. I think for me, it goes, it comes back to a few things. One is the posture of my own heart. Like, am I, do I think it's my job to lead God and tell him what he should do? Mm-hmm. Or is it my job to let God lead me? Right. So it's a posture, I think, of, of worship and humility, too. I think it's a um, a posture of gratitude. Like, can I actually see the things God is doing and not be focused on the things God isn't or be focused so on the things he's doing with other people that right. I don't pay attention to what he is doing? And then this is, for me anyway, this is the big one. It comes down to trust. Like, mm. do I trust that God is good? Do I trust that God's plans for my life are good plans and the best plans? And do I trust that God has me right where he wants me? Yeah. And I think ultimately, when it, for me, when I sort of break down before the Lord and I'm like, oh, God, here I am. So much envy. Why? Oh, I'm so sorry. Please help me. It really does come down to like, 
are your plans for me good? Yes. Do I trust that you are good? Yes. Do I believe you love me as much as you love that person who's super successful? Yes. But it's like we have to re-gospel ourselves all the time and come back to gratitude, trust, worship, and who's in charge? Yeah. What about you, Brian? I think uh, I love what all that you said there, but I also think it's a matter of perspective for me. Like I can get lost in these other things, but like what, when I look back on my life, when I hopefully am, you know, really old, just kind of sitting in my chair yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, when I look back on my life, what are the things that I'm going to be most proud of that mm. are most important to me? It's going to be the the marriage that I had. Hundred percent. It's going to be the 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 kids, and hopefully yes. at that time, grandkids, yes. and even grand great grandkids. Yes. It's going to be the friendships that I had. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to sit there and be like, man, Aubrey and I, that show we did for 30 totally. years had this kind of scope, no. or that church, and right. I, you know, right. it's going to be. It's going to be the small yes. acts of love that are the most meaningful. Yeah. And those right? things are important. Don't get me wrong. I want a super successful show. Of I want a, a growing church. Yeah. I want all. None of this is like, so you shouldn't even attract. But it's like, what are what really matters? Yeah. And, and, you know, like I feel like you said, I think John the Baptist had it lined up well going, OK, here's I I'm here to point people to Jesus and yeah. I'm going to do that with everything that I can have. So I found that interesting. A lot of times at Christmas, we don't think about John the Baptist, even though, as you said, he was kind of the first herald. He was the first one. Uh, So an important figure to think about. Coming up next, top five list, Christmas-themed. What are Aubrey and I's top five Christmas movies? We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. It's Friday. The best thing about Friday is the weekend's coming. But maybe a close second best thing about Friday is a top five list. Today, we're going to do top five Christmas movies. Christmas theme, everything's Christmas. So let's jump into our top five list. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. All right, Aubrey, this is, uh, there aren't that many to choose from, or there's more than you think, I suppose. Top five Christmas movies. I am so excited about that. Yeah, we're going to let you, you know, I think each of us can kind of take our own direction oh, here. Yeah, what is absolutely. it a Hallmark movie? Mm-hmm, is it mm-hmm. only set at Christmas? We're mm-hmm. not going to make the parameters. That's okay. kind of the fun of this. Okay. I've got five plus three on my... <gasps> I am so happy to know you have an honorable mention I list. Do. I do. All right, you get to go first. Give me your number five top Christmas movie this for Aubrey Sampson. very hard to narrow down, like deeply hard to narrow down, but my number five is uh, Holiday Inn, which was the precursor to White Christmas. Holiday Inn? Yes. Okay. One of my favorites. Bing Crosby is in it. Great music say, is in it. How old is this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like 1942, perhaps, and White Christmas came out in 1945. Similar cast, beautiful music. White Christmas is in it, actually. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used I think last week we did, we did the Steven Spielberg list of his favorite movies, and we realized most of his were in the 40s, mm-hmm. and so you're trying to like... I'm trying to be Steven like Spielberg, basically. This is basically. what the best yeah. movie people do. All right, yeah. my number five, uh, not it is iconic, but not nearly as old. Okay. Home Alone. Oh, great one. Yeah, yeah solid. Uh, not, solid Christmas movie. Well, my next one's going to be Home Alone 2. <laughs> Did you know the Home Alone um, house, which is in the north suburbs, I Mm -hmm. believe, you can now 
uh, you can stay there. It's an Airbnb. You can stay there? There is. There, that's what they're this doing This has now. just changed my entire life. I did not know that. So number five for me is Home Alone. Okay. Number four. All right. My number four, I'm going to go with the oldie bit of goodie. Charlie Brown Christmas movie. Oh. Love that. Love the little Christmas special because they tell the birth story of Jesus. Do you watch it when it comes on? Yeah, I watch it when it comes on. It's so cute. And I love the music. The Vince, what is it? Vince Garaldi trio. It's so good. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel... A multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Okay. I thought we'd have a lot of crossover. We will have crossover, I'm sure. As this I don't goes know, Brian. On, but uh, uh, you do not disappoint with kind of where you go with yours. All right, number Thank four for me, that. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> My sister's favorite Christmas movie. <laughs> I mean, that's a good you got to be careful if the kids are in the room. Yeah, you watching can't watch Wrestling that one with everybody. Maybe trying to search for it on TV where you get more of the TV version of it, but it's just, it's full of laughs and yeah, hilarity. Chevy Chase. I'm going to go National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Number three. Okay. Uh, my number three, Brian. I feel like you might judge me for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I am judging you regardless. This is actually a newer Christmas movie that came out on Disney Plus maybe three years ago, starring Anna Kendrick. It's called Noelle. Okay. She becomes the first female Santa. It's very empowering, and I cried. Noelle. I love it. It's so funny, too. Okay. I'm not sure the job of Santa is up for... It is in Noel, Brian, and it's really good. Okay. So you should watch so it with your daughters. So what happened in that movie? What happened to the original Santa? Oh, it's her dad. And I mean, I can't tell you everything. Is he okay? He's not okay if you need to know. Like all, like all Disney Santa movies, one movie? of the parents die like all Disney movies. So they killed off Santa and it's your third favorite Christmas movie? I mean, they didn't kill off Santa, Brian. That starts with... Do you really want me to tell you this right now? I do. It starts with Santa having passed, and the brother obviously is the one to take over, but he's terrible. He doesn't have the Santa Claus gifts, and she does. And it's a whole thing about discovering maybe she could be Santa. It's very beautiful. Is there a sad funeral theme? No, no, no. no, no, no. It's very delightful and jolly. It's a jolly Christmas movie. Killing off Santa is always jolly. (laughs) (laughs) Number three for me, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. I love that movie. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, he's got the, he's up on the hill and he's got all the presents mm-hmm. on him. And mm-hmm. then, oh, that and was then good. he comes in. I do like that one. Yeah, all that's right. a really good one. What are we on already? Number um, two. We're on number two. I don't think we'll be the same here, but I have a feeling our number ones are going to be the same. Uh, it better be. Okay. My number two is The Holiday. Jude Law, Cameron Diaz, um, Kate Winslet, Jack Black. I watch it every year. It's so cute and romantic and I love it. Should I know this movie? What? The holiday? You like romantic comedies. This is the quintessential Christmas romantic comedy, Brian. 
They switch houses at Christmas. One goes to England. The other goes to Hollywood. They change their lives. It's a story of transformation and love Santa and Christmas. Santa in this one, too? <laughs> yes. Santa, there, is a, there is a dead parent in this one, though, I will say. <laughs> I'm sensing the theme of your movie. Next is going to be Frozen, where they kill off all of them. <laughs> and top five. Top five <laughs> movies, movies where they kill oh, that's sad. You, you just we went too far. You we went too far. <laughs> I went too far. Number two for me, it's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, this is probably the oldest one on my list. That being a Christmas story. No, no, I want an official winner in her combination. Do you want to get rid of my leg rifle? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho. The Christmas Story. That movie stresses me out. Why? So, the whole thing is stressful. Every the kid has so much anxiety and so many terrible things happen. I can't watch it. It's so stressful. The p- pole yes, and, and then the whole scene with out. going down the slide and then the lamp. Like it stresses me out. What about when the older brother beats up the bully of the younger brother? Oh, that's a good scene. Oh, it stresses me out. I can't do it. Do you do badly with stress movies? Yes, I don't like like what about Bob? You know, like oh, some of those movies where the characters always stressed. I can't watch it. It's not enjoyable for me. So. I'm kind of ha- I kind of get what you're saying there because I will I'll struggle with movies where it's like cringing like don't do that why do you keep doing mm-hmm. that like instance, the number one movie for me that fits that bill Ben Stiller and Meet the Parents totally uh, yes it's that same vibe it's so stressful I can't I don't even enjoy it because of the stress oh I, I actually get that now a Christmas story I've never thought of it in those terms but all right I'll give it to you yeah, all right can't give do me uh anything on your honorable mention list okay I got white Christmas which probably should have been on my top five but it's an honorable mention uh, I'm gonna throw in like Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer some of those old school claymation things of when we were yeah. growing up and then I just put a general category of all hallmark movies because they're terrible but i love them all hallmark movies. i've watched probably 20 already this season so i a couple years ago when our kids were getting a little older i felt like they needed to watch the movies of claymation and mm-hmm. stuff and then you turn them on and you're like these are awful yeah they're kind of bad so but they're yeah. classic in my mind okay. you know so i like a good Rudolph. Uh, here's some of my honorable mentions uh i feel like this is the age-old debated one, so I didn't feel like it could get in the top five, that being Die Hard. Yeah, I wondered if you would bring up Die Hard or not. Uh, It's a wonderful life. Yeah, I don't know. really Ish, enjoy know. it, but you're supposed to enjoy it at it's, Christmas time. I feel so much pressure to really enjoy that movie. Yes, yes, but I put it what on your for mention. And yeah. then Polar Express. Oh, I forgot about that one. That's I, a lovely movie. I like the yeah. Polar Express. I, do uh, I have. I have never been more confident that you and I have, we have the, the same, same one. one. Should we say it at the same time? Never, ever been more confident. Should we say it at the same time? No, you go ahead. Just go ahead. What's your number one? I mean, it's obviously Elf. It is yeah, obviously Yeah, it's only Elf. Elf. Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. He'll be here to take pictures with all the children. Yeah. Just keep your receipts. 10 a.m. tomorrow. 10 a.m. tomorrow. Santa's coming to town. Yes. Can you sign this for me? Ooh, Santa's coming. Like, honestly, like, it's a Christmas movie you can watch not at Christmas. You can watch it all the time because it's so funny and delightful and charming. As time goes on, there are elements that get a little problematic, maybe socially, but generally it is hilarious and amazing and fun and delightful, and I love it. Problematic socially. 
Yeah. There are parts of Elf that you just, the whole thing you have to suspend your mind for. Yeah, That's what to, makes it funny. Like walks yeah. from the North Pole to the Lincoln Tunnel. <laughs> That's the best part. <laughs> part so good. So I love the movie Elf. Our family has already watched it this Christmas oh, season. Oh, you have? Oh, oh awesome. yes. We do okay, every we Christmas season. Yeah. And uh, we did that. So those are our top five Christmas movies. Not to be a surprise if you are with us on this show often. Four of our five are different. Yeah, that's that's on point for us. That on brand for us. On point. We'd yep. love to know what you think. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Common Good Talk. You're listening to the Common Good on AIM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are so thrilled today to be joined by Suzanne Stabile. She is a highly sought after speaker and internationally recognized Enneagram master teacher. She's the author of The Path Between Us. She's the creator and host of the Enneagram Journey podcast. And we are so excited to talk to Suzanne about her brand new book, The Journey Toward Wholeness. Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation. Suzanne, thanks so much for being here with us today. Sure, thanks for having me. Well, Suzanne, before we jump in to talk about your book, can you tell our listeners who may not be familiar with you, and maybe not even familiar with the Enneagram, a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I uh, live in Dallas with my husband, who is a pastor. We have nine children. We sent them all the way to school. They all came back with their spouses. <laughs> we have nine grandchildren and um, we have have a wonderful life here as people who are trying to make the world a better place. Mm. Um, it's complicated. We all do that in different ways. My part is that for the last 31 years, I've been studying and teaching the Enneagram. And um, I learned it when it wasn't trending. <laughs> I taught it for years. I taught it for years when it wasn't trending. Mm-hmm. And I imagine I'll be still teaching it when it isn't trending anymore. Mm. That's awesome. But for now, um, I continue to do my work, which is deep Enneagram work. I'm, I'm an Enneagram and person, mm. meaning that this ancient spiritual wisdom um, is applicable literally to every part of our lives. Yes. And um, I guess my goal in the beginning was that I wanted to somehow make the world a more compassionate place. Mm. So it takes me eight hours to teach a Know Your Number workshop. And Brian, I know that you don't know your number yet, and mm-hmm. I'm guessing that there was an ugh. <laughs> eight hours. <laughs> No, it sounds wonderful. Well, I'm just telling you, uh, I haven't had very many people get up and leave. There you go. (laughs) Proof is in the pudding. (laughs) Yeah. um, I think it's because people want to know and understand themselves. And they want to know why they do the things they don't want to do. So I start the day usually by saying, uh, when you leave, you might not know your number. so imagine me saying that to three or four hundred people. <laughs> but I say, you probably will. My my uh, percentages are pretty high. But here's what I guarantee, and the only thing I guarantee, and that is that you will leave more compassionate. Mm. Oh, I love and, that. Yeah, well, we need it. I love it, and the whole world we needs it, yeah. need it. Yeah, especially right now, isn't that the truth? Yes, yes, it is the truth. And so the reason... 
I think that it is adding compassion to the world mm. is because we all kind of think everybody's like us. Mm. Like, you know, we're all pretty much the same. That's what people say to me. Mm. And we're actually not pretty much the same. Your Enneagram number is determined by how you see, and it is determined by motivation. Mm. So, uh, Trendy Enneagram is take this little 12 question quiz <laughs> to figure out your number. <laughs> and uh, that doesn't work. Yeah. So, when you understand that literally the person standing right next to you doesn't see what you see. Mm and they don't process what they're seeing the way you do, and they don't decide what to do the way that you do, then you begin to, to get it. Mm. And it stops that, uh, oh my gosh, did you see her do that? I would never do that. Mm. And all of that is um, the way that we can begin to make room for one another. Mm, it's beautiful, Suzanne. I love, first of all, I love that you have nine kids and nine grandkids. I feel like that's very Enneagram appropriate. Like, I, part of me is oh like, oh, yeah, that's really, that's really on brand for you. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no. Did I say I have nine children? You did. Oh, no. I just have four children. Okay. I thought, wow, I've never heard her say that before. But okay, okay. That, that's a little bit better. That's a little bit more reasonable. I'm yeah, sorry. I've been, you know, I, I, I've been talking about nine so much. <laughs> it's just, it just comes out of you naturally. Well, yeah, yeah. No, no. Four kids. Okay, four good. children's spouses. Nine grandchildren. Okay, well, nine grandchildren. That's wonderful. Congratulations on that. Well, Thank Su- you. Suzanne, I would love to hear you talk about your new book, The Journey Toward Wholeness, Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and what you hope readers get from it? Um, you know, I, I think I'm stocked up on, uh, here's some more information. I don't need any more information. I can't manage the information that I have. And my mentor, Father Richard Rohr, uh, taught me that information is not knowledge and knowledge is not wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I think my first book that I wrote with Ian Cron, uh, The Road Back to You, is information. Mm-hmm. And I think The Path Between Us, which is my standalone book after that, is knowledge. Mm-hmm. This book is wisdom. And in this book where there is the wisdom of the Enneagram laid out for all nine members in ways that they can come away and know what to go home and do to make fewer mistakes, to appreciate themselves more, and to make more room for other people. Mm. I I think that's about as good as it, it gets. I'm really proud of this book, and I think it's going to make life better yeah. For yeah yeah suzanne what's the pushback people give so i just haven't taken the test but i know lots of people who have and really enjoy it. but what's the pushback where people are like maybe the enneagram's dangerous or it's not you know it's not something we should do a what's the pushback and what's your answer to those sure the the big here are three pushbacks one is i don't want anybody to put me in a box mm-hmm. well yeah, I don't do that. I show you the box you're already in. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Second pushback is uh, I've done all these personality things, and they're all about the same, and I already know this, this, and this. 
and I don't have anything against any of the others, but the difference in the Enneagram and other personality assessments is that you can do something with the Enneagram. Mm. Meaning, you can actually use this wisdom to identify where you missed the mark and to figure out how to make that better all at the same time. Mm. And the pushback from some uh, conservative Christian communities is that it's bad and evil. Right, and, right. You know, there's a big difference in an Enneagram and a Pentagram, right. number one. <laughs> uh, and, and that's kind of key. Yeah. And the second thing is that people say, they kind of lean in towards me and say, what's dangerous about Enneagram? Mm-hmm. Mm. And my answer is this. The danger of the Enneagram is that you take it to be more than it is. Mm. Oh, interesting. It's wow. just one spiritual wisdom tool. Mm. It's not the end all be all of anything. Mm. It's just one and it's really good. Yeah. And if you want to learn it and use it, great. And if you don't, also great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um Suzanne, let's dive into the book a little bit. What are some of the key themes that you explore? Well, you know, the Enneagram is really old, and um, in the 1940s, it kind of resurged, and I mean really old, like a couple thousand years old. Oh, wow. And um, a guy named Gurdjieff kind of resurrected the Enneagram, and then a guy named Maurice Nichols wrote a paper that said there are three centers of intelligence, only three, and they are thinking, feeling, and doing. And if you put his work on top of the Enneagram, then what you find out is that there are three numbers that are thinking dominant and three numbers that are feeling dominant and three numbers that are doing dominant. And at the same time, Karen Horney, who is, was German American, did her work and wrote a big paper for the big community of thinkers and philosophers in the world. And she said that all people either move toward other people away from other people or against other people. Mm. And if you put her work on top of Maurice Nicole's work on top of the Enneagram, then what you find out is that the three triads are determined by what is dominant. And then there are three stances when you add Karen Horney's work, and they're determined by which of the three centers of intelligence is repressed. Mm. And essentially, um, all of us are using two of the three centers to make our way in the world. And that's why we're tired. Mm. We're just tired. Mm. And I'd like to see us use all three. Yeah. Yeah. And if I were to use a personal example so this doesn't sound too heady, I'm a two on the Enneagram, so I'm feeling dominant and I'm thinking repressed. Mm. And I've got three books out in the world, so I, and I've taught all over the world, so I actually I know how to think. Yeah. But as a two, I think primarily about relationships because I'm feeling dominant. Mm. Mm. And so early in my life, I learned, you know, I can make my way with just reading the room because I'm feeling dominant and knowing how people feel and then doing something about those feelings. Mm. And I've got it made. Mm. Yeah. The problem is that that leaves out thinking and that means I help people who don't want my help. <laughs> it means... <laughs> yeah. Um, I, the first time my board of directors decided since I was getting old that I needed to fly first class. So I moved up to first class the first time, and I said to my assistant when we landed, you know, people in first class don't talk. 
And she said, actually, people on airplanes don't talk. <laughs> and I, I said, well, I do. And she said, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. That's awesome. Uh, so, Suzanne, I've been married for uh, 21, 22 years here, about to have an anniversary. Uh, how do uh, how do things like the Enneagram help us in our marriages? People out there probably going, well, okay, me knowing, understanding myself better, but is it helpful, also helpful to understand my spouse more? Uh, what role can something like the Enneagram play in strengthening marriages? There are a lot of disagreements that arise out of seeing the world differently. Um, I'm a two and my husband's a nine. He will avoid conflict Mm. no matter what the conflict is till the day ends. He hates conflict (laughs) and I don't love it. I don't love it, but I'm all about it with my people. Mm. I'm happy to be in conflict with people I love. Mm. So um, I had to learn to be sure that there was no unnecessary conflict for us. And he had to learn to come to the table when there was necessary conflict. Mm, That's good. Um, In relationship to the world, we're very different, but we're both other reference. And he's a pastor Mm. and I do what I do. And um, we have to be very careful. Mm. to take care of each other and our children and grandchildren and to not give away to the other time that we need for self-care or things like that. We're terrible at that. Yeah. Mm. Um, So that's another way. Yeah. Um, You can have two numbers together who are very different than one another, which is not Joe and me. You could have, say, uh, I could be in a relationship with a five. And, you know, I'm real handsy, like I like to touch Joe and hug him and (laughs) play with his hair and, you know, kiss him and all that. And fives are the Enneagram number that has a very limited amount of energy every day when they wake up. Mm. And every encounter with another human being takes energy from them. And when they start to feel like they're running out of energy, they have to protect what they have left till they get home and... So they're in a quiet space. So a two married to a five has to recognize that fives need a lot of alone time and a lot of space and not a lot of touching. Mm. And fives have to recognize that they're going to have to take care of themselves in the way that they can, but they have to limit the amount of alone time they're going to have so they can be faithful to the relationship with a two who needs time with them. Yeah. One of the things I say to fives is when when you think you don't need time with other people, you can usually be sure that they want more time with you. Wow. Mm, that's good. That's so that's so good. I'm just thinking of a five who's a close friend of mine, and that's a really that's a good word for both of us in our relationship, actually. Suzanne, you, you said earlier on that the Enneagram is a tool for spiritual wisdom. And I, I wonder if you could I don't know, maybe tell a story if either from your own life or someone that you've you've taught or ministered to through the Enneagram, how it has led them spiritually. Okay. I'm told this story in a long time, so I'm grateful to get to. Mm. I was teaching at our center here in Dallas. Uh, we built it to only hold 50 people at tables. And uh, that's still a sweet spot for me, even though I have to teach much larger 
I get to teach mm-hmm. much larger crowds usually now. Mm-hmm. And we were here, and uh, a guy named Harry came with his girlfriend. Um, he was divorced and had a son, and she was divorced. And uh, Harry was about six, no, three, maybe. And he was big, and um, they sat down, and I started teaching a Know Your Number workshop. And it was clear to me that Harry didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. And so I walked over to him at, uh, before I really got started, I walked over to him and I said, Harry, I'm guessing you're here because she begged you to come. He said, that's right. <laughs> and I said, uh, I tell you what, if by lunch you still don't want to be here, I'll tell her to let you go home. Mm. And he said, okay, do we have to wait till lunch? So <laughs> I taught, I teach, <laughs> I teach starting with eight. And I taught eight first, mm. and that happened to be Harry's number. Wow. Oh, wow. And he came up to me after I had taught two numbers, eights and nines, and he said, well, I believe I'll stay. He said, you, you nailed me with that first Wow. Thing. So I taught as many numbers as I could that day, and I was going to finish the next afternoon. And um, I... Um, I'm, I, I think I taught all, I did. I taught all the numbers that day. We were going to do some advanced work the next afternoon. Mm-hmm. So the next afternoon, Harry gets there early, and he said, uh, I'm so glad to be back. And he started crying. Mm-hmm. He said, um, one of my sons needed one of my kidneys, and I gave it to him. <gasps> and he and I have been warring with one another because he hasn't taken very good care of it. Mm-hmm. He said, but when you taught seven yesterday, I recognized that my son's a seven. Mm. And I went home, and he said, we've been up all night. I talked with my son until 2.30 this morning. He called his girlfriend and woke her up, and she came over. And I literally talked with them till I walked out of the house wow. with a mug of coffee in my hand. Oh, mm. wow. That's great. And he said, now I understand why my son didn't take care of the kidney like I would have mm. because I'm an eight and he's a seven. Mm. And then he started coming to our church. Mm. And one month into coming to our church, he came up to me after worship and he said, my son died Thursday. <gasps> oh. And he said, without you, mm. we would have never found each other. Oh, Suzanne. Mm. Mm. Wow. Wow, that is so. I've decided to come back to church, do mm-hmm. spiritual work. I wow, good for you. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, mm-hmm. that is incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Sure. The reason I don't tell it is because I don't want people to ever be manipulated of into Enneagram work. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you asked the right question at the right time in the right way. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think the answer would be manipulated. No, it was beautiful. Thanks, Suzanne. Suzanne Stabile is the author of The Path Between Us and the creator and host of the Enneagram Journey podcast. She's also the author of a new book, The Journey Toward Wholeness, Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation. You can learn more about Suzanne and her new book at SuzanneStabile.com and at LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com. You can connect with Suzanne on Twitter at Suzanne Stabile. Suzanne, thanks so much for your time today. It's meant so much to us. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks, guys. Brian, I'll see you. Eight hours. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'll find you. (laughs) You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And it's the end of the show. And at the end of every show, especially on a Friday, we like to send you home with something encouraging or inspiring or challenging. And, uh, you know, it's Christmas time, Brian. So I thought we would keep in the Christmas theme wonder if you have been paying attention to kind of the pop culture, Christian pop culture conversation around the very famous Christmas song, Mary Did You Know? Like, I just, uh, yeah. Have I been paying attention? Only that it pops up on my Twitter every now and then. Yeah, and people are tweeting about it. Of course, my old co-host did, you know. Uh, uh, but yeah, people kind of jump in about, of course, Mary knew or Mary didn't. Yeah. That's, here's something I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know that Mary Did You Know was only written in 1991. Oh, you did it? Oh, I felt like that was a lot old. I just assume Christmas songs are really old. So Mark oh. Lowry of the Gaither Vocal yeah. Band wrote it in 1991. Who knew? Apparently yeah. you did. I, I did know that only because I remember. did you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I knew. Uh, right. So the, Tell so, us about the okay. debate, though. Okay. So lots of people love this song. It's been sung mm-hmm. in many churches. It's been covered by many bands. Uh, Pentatonix, the big, you know, very famous acapella band, covered it. Uh, the controversy or maybe the pushback is because it comes across as very um, condescending towards Mary. Mm. Like there's this, you know, this whole thing that like we're quote unquote mansplaining the birth of Jesus to Mary. And the the, <laughs> the obvious answer is like, yes, Mary knew it. The Gabriel a- angel Gabriel told her she was giving birth to the savior. So it comes across as a little bit. A little bit condescending, but over at Christianity Today, this was years ago. I thought this would be really funny that uh, because I've been seeing more about this. Yeah, they actually posted an article by Joy Clarkson called "Yes, Mary Knew." Um, but then they talk about some of the beautiful things about the song. So I thought we could. T- yes, the controversy's mm-hmm. there. Yes, it's kind of condescending towards Mary. In fact, side note before we dive into this. There's some very funny like parody versions yes. of this song where it's like, yes, Mary obviously knew. I think uh, our, your old co-host Ian Fromm actually posted some I'm of the Ian lyrics. Simkins. I'm Ian Simkins. I'm Brian oh. Fromm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were close, but not that close. Yes. Ian Simkins, pardon me, posted some of the parody lyrics. So there's lots uh, out there about yeah, it. But anyway, yeah, yeah. some of the beautiful things that the um, this writer talks about if listeners can get beyond artistic interpretation to focus on the words though simple and at moments affected they are profoundly scriptural it says the song mary did you know actually traces the character of christ from the messianic prophecies of the hebrew bible to jesus's earthly ministry and finally to christ's cosmic reign Mm. in all it is a fitting summation of the role of christ it also says the content of the song is not shallow or sentimental and while it can sound saccharine when it's crooned out by, you know, various singers, it actually has a certain gravity and solemnity. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's a that's an interesting take on it, Brian. Have you what do you think? Have you do you have any opinion about Mary? Did you know? So of course Mary knew, right? Like you yes. said, the angel came to her. We read that, but it, it also what, what you want to remember that Mary was a real person. Mm. Uh, I had I preached on Mary oh, a couple yeah, weeks hear. ago. And, you know, you reminded that Mary was a young girl, yeah. pro- probably illiterate, probably right. in her teenage years. Right. She's getting married, like, in a small town of Nazareth, which is a nothing town. Like, Mary's not who we often portray her to be. Yeah. And and so, yes, did Mary know? Yes, we read that. But did Mary actually understand fully what was coming? We don't know that. But you, 
it would humanly make sense that Mary couldn't fully grasp what she was in for and just going. Right. Well, even the disciples did it. Yeah. 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 And so there's that. I I would also say this, Aubrey, you and I talked about this earlier in the week. I think it was on Monday. Um, I would also say this. uh, I would say out of a pushback against um, Catholic veneration of mm-hmm. Mary, if you will. A lot of us Protestants have downplayed Mary. Uh, and and I that think, is true. I think much to our detriment. Yeah. I think Mary is to be, right, esteemed. Mary is to be thought about as well. Like she she also, uh, you know, she's the first one who, if, if you will, accepted Jesus. Yes. Or, or whose life was turned upside down. Yes. Uh, she's there at the end. She's at the cross. She's in the uh, the room in Acts. Like Mary's there. I think thinking about venerating um, yeah. um respecting yes. Mary is essential. And I do fear uh, that that oftentimes, because of what we see in the Catholic Church, a lot of us in the Protestant Church go, well, then we got to go totally the other way right. on Mary here. Right. And I don't think that's helpful. I think there's a lot we can learn from here, a lot we can be thankful. And so a song about Mary, I think, is helpful in the Protestant tradition, even if we want to nitpick some yeah. of the things along the way. Yeah, it's part of why I like um, The Chosen. We've talked about The mm-hmm. Chosen on the show before. We've had Dallas Jenkins on. It's just his portrayal of Mary, too, like her being with Jesus all throughout his ministry and remembering that she was an actual person. Here's the other thing I think is really cool. So uh, Luke, who shares us Mary's song and, and tells a lot about Mary's story, we're told that Luke put together his account of what happened in the life of Jesus like years later, right? Mm. And he wanted to put together firsthand accounts of people who knew Jesus and saw Jesus and walk with Jesus. So sometimes I like to imagine that Luke was going back years later to interview Mary. And Mm. here's Mary at this point, a very old mother has watched her son suffer and die. And yet still recalls when she's talking to Luke, all the lyrics of this song of worship Mm. towards him. And there is something about thinking about a mom who has known such horrific loss, still praising God, that yeah. God, saying that God has been good to her. I, I love that attitude that Mary shows us. I think that's a great posture for all of us to have this time of year, no matter what we're carrying. So Mary, mm-hmm. did you know? Yes, she knew. And uh, yes, she's a powerful person in the Christmas yeah. story. Well, we hope that that encourages you today. We hope you have some awesome Christmas plans this weekend. We will be back on Monday after a great Christmas weekend. Oh, I guess it's not quite Christmas. It's almost Christmas. Well, we're so close. We're we're almost there. We'll be back on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. right here on AM 1160. My name is Aubrey Sampson. And for Brian Fromm, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525.